Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my Right Fit Method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. A key component of my method is passion, our career fuel, the impetus and foundation of career success. But passion is not enough. You must harness that passion. Here's how. Compete with yourself, raising the bar higher and higher. Manage the process to achieve your goals. Recognize right fits. Recognize wrong fits. Determine if you can fix or not fix a wrong fit. Know when to walk away. Assume responsibility for your successes and failures. Say to yourself, it's all up to me. Throughout my own career as a medical school dean to heading a $60 million education program at the National Institutes of Health and as the founder and CEO of Barrow Global Search, Inc., I have observed that figuring out right fits is extremely difficult for many people to do. They continue taking the wrong fit road and wonder why they are in wrong fit marriages, wrong fit careers, or wrong fit homes. The solution is simple. Stop asking who is the best and what is the best. Stop comparing and contrasting. If all your choices are wrong and you pick one which you designate as the best, you made a wrong choice. Picture a barrel of rotten apples. Grab the best. Remember, they are all rotten. What do you have? A rotten apple. To learn more about my Right Fit Method, continue listening to today's show, and after the show, visit winwithoutcompeting.com to read excerpts from my book. Today, we have a very special show dedicated to helping those who are searching for new solutions to achieve professional and personal success. Are you curious about what erroneous assumptions you make? To find out, stay tuned to take my Assumptions Quotient Quiz. More than 15 million people are currently unemployed, and millions of employed are shaky about their jobs and careers. Fear can cloud our judgment and prevent us from acting appropriately. 
Fear, coupled with erroneous assumptions, is deadly. You will be amazed to find out the number of erroneous assumptions that you make which impede your career success. Before I go on to the assumptions quotient quiz, I want to introduce my guest co-host from Atlanta, Virgil Holder, Corporate Director of Recruitment at the prestigious Piedmont Healthcare Organization, which includes five hospitals. I have known Virgil for many years. Prior to joining Piedmont, he was the Director of Employment Services at St. Jude Children's Hospital in Memphis, founded by Danny Thomas. Virgil was my client and experienced firsthand my right fit method. In his review of my book, Win Without Competing, his review was featured on the back cover. I quote, Dr. Arlene Barrow's book, Win Without Competing, makes the many secrets of her proven method readily available for recruitment professionals, and believe me, they really work. While consulting with Dr. Barrow on numerous executive searches, I discovered how defining the sole right-fit candidate for each open position could eliminate the need to hire on gut instinct from a wide pool of candidates. Employing her right-fit method, we have dramatically reduced screening time and are proud of our 100% retention rate of the stellar candidates her method brought to us. I highly recommend that HR professionals apply the principles detailed in Dr. Barrow's book to all their hiring needs. Welcome, Virgil, to Win Without Competing. Well, thank you, Arlene. It's a pleasure to be here with you tonight. I am just so delighted that you are my co-host. And also, too, from your perspective, what do you think about the fact that I've shared my secrets not just with hiring professionals but also with candidates who really need to know step-by-step how to present themselves as the one right fit? Well, I think it's important from both aspects. Certainly the hiring, hiring authority uh, would benef- benefits greatly by using the right fit method and defining exactly what they're looking for. But from the candidate's viewpoint, it's equally as important because the candidate really needs to know ahead of time what is the right fit for them as an individual. And, that's, and your book really helps them to really examine themselves and figure that out. Terrific. On to the assumptions quotient quiz. Please take a piece of paper and write the numbers 1 to 10 so you are ready to jot down your responses. Write T if the statement is true and F if the statement is false. At the end of the quiz, I will give you the answers with explanations. Question 1. Blasting your resume from Burbank to Bombay is essential to finding a job. 
Question two, it is imperative that you follow employer instructions about submitting a resume, which may include no phone calls. Three, the employer must interview many candidates and select the best. Four, at the interview, you should ask about the number of candidates that will be interviewed for the position. Five, it is inappropriate to discuss compensation at the first interview. Six, if the employer is vague about a position during an interview, do not ask any questions to illuminate the position as you may embarrass the employer. Question seven. Getting interviews is very difficult because the employers do not have the time to look at hundreds of emailed resumes, the majority of which are unsolicited. Eight. If employers share their company's personal problems or difficulties in filling positions, you should discuss your personal problems. Nine, at an interview, you should spend a lot of time discussing what you have done in the past. Ten, moving up within an organization is not up to you. The employer should recognize your talents and promote you. Let's find out what assumptions you make. Pat yourself on the back if all 10 questions are marked false. Congratulations. If you only marked six questions false, it is imperative, imperative that you understand the erroneous assumptions that you are making. Continue listening to today's show. If you marked zero questions false, it is urgent that you continue to listen to today's show and I highly recommend that you take lots of notes. Now I will repeat each question again and explain why the response for each question is false as we go along. And Virgil will be chiming in and giving his perspective from the employer view. Question one, blasting your resume from Burbank to Bombay, is essential to finding a job. I see this as an act of desperation. Your goal is to present yourself as the one right fit, not to blanket the world with unsolicited resumes. I agree with you, um, Arlene. In fact, employers... Can, can easily identify a resume that is just a blasted resume. 
That's very, it has, I'm delighted, Virgil, that you said that. <laughs> Tell us how you can identify it. Well, uh, an employer wants to see a resume that has a focus on the job that the person is applying for. Because, again, the employer is hopefully already thinking about what the right fit is for the job. Um, and most employers search for candidates based upon jobs they have open. And I think a lot of candidates think that they get jobs just by blasting their resume and that someone is going to see the resume and think, oh, this person is so fabulous, I must hire them. But the problem is, especially in today's economy, a company can't just hire somebody. They have to hire somebody for a job that's already deemed required or necessary for that company's business needs. So the resume needs to focus on how that person is the right fit for that job. Otherwise, it doesn't get much attention. Thank you, Virgil. Question two. It is imperative that you follow employer instructions about submitting a resume, which may include no phone calls. It is imperative that the employer see you as a person, not as another resume. To do that, you must call to present yourself for a specific position for which you believe that you match. Virgil, what kind of a phone call would you like to receive? Well, I, of course, uh, we, we receive about 6,000 applicants a month for the jobs uh, just at the central hospital for the Piedmont Healthcare System. So of those 6,000, you can imagine a lot of them do call in to try to inquire or ask or just wonder why they're not being interviewed. But the, the callers that, um, that I ask the front desk receptionist to forward to me or to one of the actual recruiters is uh, I, I want to hear from the callers who are calling specifically to find out and ask questions about a job that they have applied for. Maybe they want to find out, um, am I being considered? Uh, how do you see me for this job? Am I the right fit for this job? That's what I like to I'm happy to talk to any candidate about that at any time. I'm not really interested in talking to candidates who just want me to look at their resume and tell them what job I should that they should take. Okay, right. <laughs> I'm not their, um, you know, you're not their they, advisor. I'm not their advisor. I, I want, and I say to, I give it back to the candidate, and I. So often they'll say, "Oh, will you please remember me if something opens up that looks good for me." So now what and, do you respond? Because if you're receiving 6,000 resumes monthly, how can you remember people? I mean, you, you'd need a full-time assistant just to keep records of those comments. Yeah, well, uh, what I tell them is, because, again, you know, I don't want to – I want them to want to apply, but I don't want to give them false hope or give them a false expectation that I'm somehow going to remember them for the future. So what I say to them is, you know, I, I – I would like to say that you could rely on me remembering you and remembering you when a position opens up that might be a fit for you, but I have to put that responsibility back on you. And I say, please continue to check our website. All of our opportunities are posted there. Here's my direct number. 
when you see something that you want to apply for, you can call my number and we can talk about it. Well, I think that's very nice that you invite them to do that, that you actually give them your direct line. But you know what, Arlene? Of those I give that to, maybe one out of 25 ever call me back. That's amazing. But that's why in the book I talk about the need to assert yourself, the need to call the employer. What about taking another route, not submitting your resume first, but calling to discuss the opportunity so that the candidate can then determine if he or she is in fact the right fit and then can appropriately create the resume so that the fit is clearly articulated. I do get those kind of calls, and I do, I do enjoy talking to those individuals also because they're looking at the job opportunity first. And then they're calling in and saying, you know, I'd like to speak to someone who can give me some more detailed information about such and such specific job. And when I talk to those candidates, they say, hey, I've read about the job. I see what you've posted, but can I ask you a few questions about it? So they're trying to delve in deeper as to maybe what are some things about the job that aren't actually in the posting what is the manager or department really looking for? And then they start asking me if I think they should apply. <laughs> and then, of course, I say, well, you know, do you meet all these requirements? Is, does this describe you? <laughs> and if they say, well, yes, I say, well, then you should apply. <laughs> well, that's very interesting. If you think it's a, a lack of confidence, Virgil? What, what is your feeling about that? Because if you're taking the time, I mean, you're really busy. I mean, you have all those hospitals underneath you, you have a large team of recruiters, and you told me when we talked prior to the show that you actually look at every single resume that's submitted. I mean, I think it's unbelievable, frankly, and I think it's rare. Yes, not me specifically. Yeah, no, no, of course not you, but your team. Yeah, Yeah, your team. team Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, but I think that's highly unusual. I mean, think of, you know, very large companies, let's say a Fortune 50 company. I mean, who knows how many thousands of resumes they receive every month. I don't think it's humanly possible unless they hired a special team to look at each one. I guess what is important, though, is to try to figure out why they need you to encourage them to submit the resume after you've taken the time to illuminate the opportunity so they can determine whether, in fact, they fit. What is your thought there? I think that they're just... um is they it a confidence thing? I, I think that they, you know, no one likes to feel that they've been rejected. And I think they may have had experience where they've applied many times online for company for jobs at other companies. And maybe they got an interview, maybe they never got an interview. Uh, but probably they were blasting their resume around and, <laughs> and thinking they would get an interview just because they applied for so many jobs. Right. Of course, it doesn't work that way. I think they just are beginning to lose confidence, and they just, um, they're just they just trying to confirm that they would be considered. 
you know, I don't give them any promises. I don't promise that they would be interviewed, but I let them know, you know, as long as they're meeting the requirements and even exceeding the requirements. Of course, depending on the job, I can be honest with them and say, well, you know, this particular job um, has such and such minimum requirements, but you have to realize that probably several hundred people are going to apply that have these minimum requirements. So unless you exceed those, or unless you have the preferences and even more than the preferences, you're not likely to actually be considered and brought in for an interview. But that's why, in terms of my next question, the employer must interview many candidates and select the best. The employer needs to interview one candidate, the right fit candidate. If I'm doing a search with you, I present to you the right fit candidate. So in that situation, I and the candidate have shown the exquisite fit. Mm -hmm. Now, when I'm not working with the HR professional and the candidate is presenting himself or herself, that person has to be very clever in terms of convincing the employer that he or she is the one right fit so that it is up to the candidate to convince you that you do not need to interview a hundred candidates to determine the one right fit. Well, and that's exactly true, and, and, and I have to say, Sometimes candidates understand that, and they do convince me. Good. And then I'm able to go to the hiring manager and say, hey, this person called in, they're in your applicant pool, and I just have to let you know what my experience has been as I spoke with them on the phone. And um, I think you're going to be very, very pleased when you interview this person. And then I'll go on and give them some details about how I think they're right for the job. But, you know, Arlene, I think a lot of times hiring managers end up interviewing numerous um, candidates because they don't see the right fit, and sadly, they're just trying to get the best of the wrong fit. I do think that happens in reality. Right. But think about it to yourself, Virgil. When you and I do a search together, and I talk with you and the hiring manager and want them to sign off on the blueprint, they really are heavily focused on that blueprint mm -hmm. because they understand that I'm bringing them the one right fit. Mm -hmm. I, I think that um, one has to spend a lot of time on the blueprint. I think that that's essential. Mm -hmm. And I also think that the hiring manager has to be committed to that blueprint. In other words, really believes that if that person presents himself or herself and matches that blueprint, that that should be the person that should be hired. What I think is that we function on the standard of best. Mm -hmm. It is very difficult for people to give up that need, which is really not a logical need, it's an illogical need, 
to compare and contrast, even if they're talking to 20 wrong fits. They feel that that um, process of comparing and contrasting will, by some act of God, produce the right fit. Yes, and it's, um, I do find that a challenge working with hiring managers, Arlene, because I think you and I had this conversation once before that um, some individuals don't, they, it's, very, it's very difficult for them to move away from that contrast and compare model. Right. Um, I think it's probably because they are insecure in their own decision-making and that they can only make a decision, I guess, based upon looking at a group and then trying to just pick the one that's the least bad of the group. <laughs> right, yeah, no, that's really, it's, it's, uh, that mindset is, is, can be lethal. Because that's, that's very bad for the company, really, because the company is not getting the best. Well, that's correct. And then what happens is if you hire the wrong fit because the hiring manager insists what are you going to ultimately do? You're going to ultimately let that person go or the person is going to be so unhappy that they're going to start looking for something else and then you'll need to rehire again. And that whole process, of course, is very costly. Yes. Going further, it is inappropriate to discuss compensation at the first interview. To the contrary, it is important to discuss compensation at the first interview, whether it's phone or in person. Why waste your time or the employer's? When I do a search and I present a candidate, I do not present a candidate unless the compensation is exactly right. In the years at St. Jude, did I ever present a candidate to you that I was unable to close as a result of the compensation was the wrong fit? No, uh, because you, we just we, you knew ahead of time, and working with me, I made sure you had all the information ahead of time of what what we were capable of doing for the right candidate, and so. I don't think, and you didn't, you didn't present a candidate unless you had already done some pre-investigation there to make sure. Oh, did I ever investigate? <laughs> did I ever investigate? Well, absolutely. I mean, that would be as soon as I started talking with a candidate that I felt had the potential to be the right fit. I immediately brought up compensation mm-hmm. and made it very clear that I would not present that person as the one right fit if, in fact, I could not close. I didn't have a problem if the person went for the interview and decided that something wasn't to their liking. In other words, something important. For example, the culture would be a problem. Okay, That was all right but not the compensation. The compensation should never be an issue. That needs to be decided very early on. Well, and when I'm interviewing a candidate, just through the more traditional process where they've applied for a job and 
and I'm the one doing the first interview. And right. generally it would be on the telephone just to be sure, because generally I'm working more with um, director level and above candidates, uh, even though the recruitment staff is certainly very professional and they can handle those kind of candidates also. But if it's a special job, you know, I'll still handle it myself. Right now I'm working on an HR director search for one of our hospitals. But the um, when I'm in my first initial telephone screen or telephone chat with the individual, if they don't ask me, I make sure I bring it up because I want to know what ballpark figure. I actually use the, I use the term ballpark all the time. I don't well, they understand what you know, I, about, but that's I said, what, well, what's the ballpark figure that you would be looking for if this is the right fit for you and you're the right fit for us, what would be the ballpark figure? And that helps me know whether I should proceed or not. You see, and if I, working on the other side of the table, were coaching that candidate, Mm -hmm. I would say that I would give a range. I would not give one single number. Well, that's when I say ballpark. That's what I. That's what I expect from them. I don't a range. expect a Good. number. Okay. I expect something in a. Give me a. Give me an area of money where you think your salary should fall. Yeah. No, that's good because we don't want a situation where somebody says, "Well, I need a uh, hundred and ten thousand." Okay. Because if they give a range, you might be able to put a package together that would be very appealing to someone. Mm-hmm. And I think you and I did that with candidates we that that absolutely you'd hired um through your with your assistance. And when a, and I also do want to know what the candidate's current compensation is and and are they bonus eligible and um you know because so, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what kind of package do I do I what package am I competing with? But the thing is this. Even though we're not really competing, I'm just trying to find the right package. Yeah, you're trying to find the right package. Well, I guess you're trying to find a package that is now what the candidate is focusing on. Because if the candidate is in a position, as you're speaking with that person, or uh, was downsized, Mm. you need to know whether they want to stay where they were before or whether they could be flexible in the event that your position has been graded so that they the range perhaps might be a little bit less, yet you could still do something with a sign-on bonus and other things to compensate. Am I correct, Virgil? That's right, and, and you know, even more often in with today's uh, economic situation i find candidates who whose uh, most recent position was at a much higher level than the position they're applying for and i have to help hiring managers understand that well the hiring manager says well well that why would they take this job it makes less money than the job they had before and then I say, well, I talked to the candidate about that. They know what this job pays, and they are interested in this job. So all I can say is they've made that decision ah. that, that they would like, they, they want this job. Um, 
And there because may it, be a lot of reasons why it may happen. It may be that when they were in an upper management or director level position, that they didn't have time with their family. Maybe now that maybe that that company downsized, maybe their position was eliminated. They got a beautiful severance package, and they don't want to have the same lifestyle that they had when they were a director. I, I, have, I have a lot of I've had quite a few candidates that have that story. They don't want a job like the job they had. <laughs> so now, do the hiring officials do they have an issue with that? Uh, rationale that you present to them? Is it hard for them to accept that as being actual fact? Or do they believe that the person will take the job over the short short term and then leave when they find a position where the compensation is significantly higher? They tend to think that the person isn't going to be motivated to stay. Yeah, see, that's that's um, the usual. Yeah. That's usual. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, there are cases where a person is only taking a job because that's the job that's available. But I can figure that out in the interview. Unless they're just a really, really good liar, <laughs> I can figure them out. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, you, you're, you're busy probing away, right, Virgil? Yes. I mean, if I ask them, I say, where do you see yourself in your professional career in five years? They've got to give me a really good answer that makes sense. Now, and it's got to make sense with what they just told me that they want this lower level position because that's important to them. If then they say, well, yeah, well, in five years I'd like to be a vice president, well, then that's contradictory, you know? So something's wrong with this story. <laughs> no, that's very good. Yeah, that's good. So that, uh, and later on, when we're going to talk a bit about your career, uh, I am going to uncover why you're so good at the probing. But we'll save that for later, Virgil. It'll be our secret. All right. If the employer is vague about a position during an interview, do not ask any questions to illuminate the position as you may embarrass the employer. To the contrary, that's the perfect situation for you to help clarify the position and create a blueprint of the right fit candidate then you need to demonstrate how you match the blueprint. So instead of seeing the vagueness as a negative, to the contrary, see it as a positive. Would you concur, Virgil? I, I would, and um, I guess there's really two ways for a candidate to look at it. Now, we're talking about a candidate who's really talented at knowing the right fit for themselves. Absolutely. And if they're being being interviewed and the employer can't seem to define what the right fit for that job really is or what the real goal is or what they want the job to accomplish or or what the real um, uh, hurdles might be faced in the job, then I think the candidate can see it two ways. One way is they may just want to go running from the office and say, I don't want that job. (laughs) If the company (laughs) can't figure out what the job is, I sure don't want it. Right. Or if they are really, really sure about themselves and they know, they've they've studied about the company and they, they know what they could do for that company, that they could create the right fit job right there in that company, then they should still go for it. Absolutely. Because they may know more about the right fit than the, than the, than the employer does. 
Virgil, I would love to applaud. I think that's outstanding what you just said. Could you repeat that again, that the candidate may know more about the position than the employer? You've made my day. Well, if the employer is so confused about what the goal is for that job or what what should be accomplished, you know, you know I, I think a candidate should always say, well, in a year, in one, in twelve months, what are what are what are maybe two of the most important things you would like me to have accomplished in twelve months in this job? And if the pl- employer can't even come up with one, <laughs> then maybe. Maybe that that candidate could actually really show them a thing or two if that candidate takes that job. Well, yes, I think the candidate needs to be assertive mm-hmm. and basically paint the position right in they front can, of the employer's eyes. Don't you agree? They could create the right fit for the employer. Absolutely. Question seven. Now, we talked about question seven before, basically, but I'll just repeat it because I think we did a good job. Um, Getting interviews is very difficult because the employers do not have the time to look at hundreds of emailed resumes, the majority of which are unsolicited. Forget for a moment about resumes. Think about how to approach the employer differently. And you and I talked about that. We talked about the specific position versus the general inquiry. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add, Virgil? Well, I think my my general advice to any candidate, and of course I have lots of people that just know me, you know, in my personal life and they know that my job is employment. And uh quite often people want to want me to look at their resumes, not necessarily that they expect my hospital to hire them, but they just want to know is that the way they're supposed to do a resume? But my first point always to them is your resume should be customized for each job that you're applying for. That the employment person is not going to make any assumptions. If the job requires specific experience in a certain area and your resume talks about your experience in a similar area, the candidate can't expect the employer to just make an assumption, oh, well, if they know this particular skill, then they must also know this other skill. They don't make any assumptions. Well, they don't have time, I don't think, they to don't make have any time. assumptions. That's why when you mentioned about the many, many resumes that come in, see, that's where they, the resumes just have to be very specific because, you know, the employer is looking for the right fit resume, and it has to speak to them from the page. I think also, too, if they want to be the one right fit, the resume should really be tailored to show how they are the exquisite fit, not just the right fit, so that all the details, they're the flawless fit, there's nothing missing. Mm -hmm. Or if there's something small missing, the resume is written in such a way to overcome any potential objection. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And on rare occasions, I see one of those. <laughs> <laughs> they need to read when without competing, That's Virgil. That's right. They need to read that. They need to read your book. <laughs> That's true. 
if employers share their company's problems, this is question eight, or difficulties in filling positions, you should discuss your personal problems. Absolutely not. Listen to the employer and do not discuss your personal problems. You will learn a lot about the company, which is your goal. They do not need to know that you have been divorced two or three times or have six children. Your thoughts, Virgil? Uh, I, this is, I feel really strongly about this. That the, First of all, the employer should not even be inquiring in any sort of a personal manner. Well, course. that's correct. I agree. That's a given. But sometimes candidates love to talk about themselves, especially if the employers start. It gets them relaxed. It gets them in touch with themselves, and they can't wait to start to share. Yes, and I, I caution the uh, hiring managers if you have children or if you have grandchildren, don't talk about it during the interview. Right. Because if you start talking about, oh, you know, I'm sorry I was a little late. I was at my grandson's baseball game. And blah, 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 and then they're, in a sense, indirectly asking the candidate to talk about their family. I agree with you. And Look. so I tell the managers, don't do it. Just talk about job-related, specific job-related matters. And if the candidate starts on their own veering into personal things, then the hiring manager, I advise them to, okay, well, um, thank you for sharing, but uh, let's, let's talk about some more job-related information to help me understand how you are a fit for this position. Well, that's good. So you move them in that direction. You right. manage the process, which is yeah. what we want the candidate to be doing. I remember uh, a number of years ago when I was in a high-level uh, management position um, at a medical care institution, and the chairman of surgery came late to a meeting, and he said, I was just doing my laundry. That's why I'm late. Hmm. He was just... Uh, in the process of getting a divorce, and I thought, I don't think we all needed to hear that he was doing his laundry. It didn't help the group. They weren't impressed. I mean, you really have to be watchful about what you say. Mm -hmm. Question nine. At an interview, you should spend a lot of time discussing what you have done in the past. At an interview, you should be talking about your achievements in relation to what you will achieve for the employer with whom you are speaking. Be sure to focus on outcomes, not process. Working for 30 years is not an accomplishment or achievement. Your thoughts, Virgil? Yes, the employer... The employer does want to know for certain that you meet the minimum Correct. experience requirements. So uh, the, the employer may ask about some things on the resume, you know, just to confirm that you're able to speak intelligently about right. the experience that was required. But really then, other than that, the employer just really wants to know how does your past experience make you an excellent candidate or the right candidate for the job I have to offer you. So it needs to, what, when they talk about their past work history, it always needs to be um, 
relevant to what they can do in this new job. Well, also, too, many res- resumes describe process, what people are doing. Mm-hmm. And somebody could be, as I pointed out, working for 30 years, but not necessarily accomplishing or achieving. Whereas you might have somebody that is up and coming who's worked maybe five to ten years and can really demonstrate that he or she has made significant achievements. Yes, and I think that is an important part of the resume is to have a section. uh, Well, even if you talk about each job, each job, there should be comments on what you accomplished. Absolutely, absolutely. I think accomplishments is great for each job section. (laughs) I remember doing um, references for a nursing candidate who was uh, interested in a VP position, and I had presented her as the one right fit, and the employer just adored her. When I did the references and I talked in depth with the chief nursing officer of a very prestigious institution, she told me that the only thing that she could really see as an accomplishment was the fact that this nurse was busy drinking coffee all day and that the people who were doing the work were those that were reporting to her. So after discovering that, I told my client employer that we should not proceed Mm -hmm. because through that reference, I figured out that she appeared as the right fit because she could walk the talk or talk the walk, walk the talk, Virgil? <laughs> walk the talk. Uh, walk the talk? Walk the walk. talk, yes, walk the talk. <laughs> walk the talk, yeah. Walk the talk, but in actuality, she would have been disaster for that client of mine. Mm-hmm. And so he thanked me, and we did not proceed with her. And so I was, you know, thankful that the reference had been honest with me. I must say that I've been very fortunate over the years that the references that I do, which are in-depth and direct quotes, where I spend a lot of time probing away, that the references are and have been honest with me. I've never had a situation, and I've been in executive search since '95, whereby I've placed someone where the references were subsequently in error. And so I'm, I'm very pleased about that. Because sometimes references don't necessarily want to say something that would jeopardize the person from getting the offer. It's true. And I, I, that think, I think when you're doing your references and also when, if I'm collecting references, I, one question I always ask is, if you were going to give one 
point of constructive criticism to this candidate, what would it be? And I even say, at times I'll say, well, uh, what, what, you know, of course they've, they, you know, you've been happy with them and they speak very positively. I say, but what is one thing that you think they might have an opportunity to improve in? Well, that's good because then you you can through that start figuring out mm-hmm. if there's a little flame there that you need to pursue. Yes. Okay, this is the last question, and then we're going to go on to questions. Moving up within an organization is not up to you. The employer should recognize uh, your talents and promote you. It's all up to you to present your accomplishments on the job to the employer to set the stage for a promotion for which you will ask for. Mm -hmm. That's really what needs to be done because frequently people say, oh, I've been working there for many years and nothing's happened. Well, does the employer know what you've achieved? Have you sent in quarterly reports? so that the employer can say, okay, I know what that person has done. So I see that, again, as all up to the candidate. It, it is, and I, I, I have to tell you, my experience, because I've lived in the South all my life and worked in the South all my life, and you and I have talked about this before, Arlene, that in the southern states, people don't tend to honk their own horn. <laughs> yes, we have talked about that. Yes, and, we definitely really, talked about that. But they really need to. And I, I think even at times in my own career, I don't think I honked my horn as much as I should uh, with my boss, bosses that I've had before. And um, I think you, you said something very wise there that the person you work for may not be aware of all that you do. So I think even giving quarterly reports to your boss, even though your boss hasn't asked for them, to talk about your accomplishments is an excellent thing. And I think it makes a difference. And when we think about the boss themselves, they're awfully busy. They really don't have time to run around and try to figure out what everybody is doing that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that's true. They just don't have time. And as long as everything is moving along smoothly and the customers aren't complaining and the numbers look good and their boss is happy, then they're happy. Absolutely. So sometimes a really stellar employee does get overlooked because they're not honking their horn and letting the the manager, their boss, know what they're doing. Virgil, let's go on to the question segment because we do have callers on the line waiting to be heard. I do want to start with Barbara Tomzak, who's an HR professional from Chicago who was featured on PBS's nightly business report on the unemployed. And she could not be with us tonight, but wanted to 
have the question asked, how do I determine that the position and company are a good fit from my perspective and from theirs? Now, we talked about the blueprint, but what would really be, I think, helpful to our listeners, Virgil, is if you could tell us from your perspective about an easy-to-fill situation and a difficult-to-fill situation so that we can see how you would handle the blueprint in those two different situations. Well, uh, let me talk about one that was probably easy to fill. And when I say easy to fill, I really mean that there would be a large number, probably hundreds of applicants who would meet the minimum requirements. So that would be easy in the sense that there's a large pool to pick from. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you can quickly locate and identify the right fit. Um, a benefits analyst, for example, that's a that's a general HR role. There are just loads of people out there <laughs> with a benefits experience, and um, especially right now, a lot of companies have downsized, so there are a lot of HR people out there looking for work. So if we posted the benefits analyst, we would get probably 50 applicants a day, at least, and probably 35 of those would meet the minimum requirements. Um, so then we would have to, we'd have to just spend a lot of time, look, we'd really be spending time looking at all those resumes like we talked about before that the manager really doesn't have time to do. Right. But, but we're looking for the one with the right fit. So we would have defined, would have defined with the hiring manager, okay, you really want, a benefits analyst who's worked in a hospital setting, is that what you want? Yes, that's what I want. Do you want one that's worked in a large city hospital setting versus a small country hospital? Yes, yes, right. that's what I want. Good. Um, do you want someone who's um, got experience with a particular uh, benefit software? Yes, yes, that's what I have to have. I have to have that. So those may not be requirements in the posting, but that's what we would be we would be looking through those hundreds of resumes to identify the right one. And we certainly wouldn't be interviewing anyone unless they had all of those right fit requirements. And what about the difficult to fill? How do you handle that when you have a situation whereby there may be specific needs that you have and there are missing pieces there. How do you handle that? Well, I can think of an example, a position such as a clinical informatics specialist. That's an IT position, but it's very specialized because uh, it requires that the IT person have a clinical knowledge. And what I found from my experience is that in order to really have a clinical knowledge of the level that uh, the person can actually understand what a doctor needs from an IT software product and understand what a nurse needs or what a radiologist needs, they have to have been one of those. They have to have actually worked in that field. So the clinical informatics specialist, a clinical informatics analyst is uh, difficult to fill because it is very difficult to find someone who even meets the minimum requirements of a 
clinical background, probably we would say an RN or pharmacist or radiology technician maybe even, but then they also have to have the, maybe have gone back to school and gotten a computer science degree or they've worked in a, a clinical setting where they moved into an IT role for several years and learned all of this on the job. That's hard to find an external candidate who has that. So what we have done in the past is uh, we've ended up uh, accepting someone from our own rosters who has all the clinical experience and who has demonstrated an aptitude for the IT part. And so then that person has had an opportunity to actually train and move into the clinical informatics role. So there, I guess, it's where the company is defining what their, what their right fit need is. And then maybe there's not a candidate that exists. <laughs> well, it's a tricky business, yes. uh, really, because I guess that different companies can determine the extent to which they want to train people mm-hmm. at all levels. But they still have to pick the right person. To train. By the training. It's Absolutely. got to be a person that's demonstrated the aptitude. So there's still a fit there that they have to find. And sometimes I'm sure it's not easy to assess whether the person is the right fit, would be the 100% right fit after the training because you are, there is some risk involved there. Yes, and, and I've seen it not be real successful, yes. <laughs> yes. No, 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 because I'm busy thinking of examples. Uh, not at Piedmont. I'm thinking about maybe some other experiences. <laughs> yes, no, no, no. I was thinking of the other experience as well. Yeah. Uh, going further, I did want to conclude with an emailed quote from Barbara. I had spoken with her on the phone and talked about the barrel of rotten apples, and she responded with, Uh, With respect to her career, I truly believe that I made bad decisions in the past because I chose bad apples, those that were the best of the bunch, out of the rotten apple barrel, not realizing I had made that mistake. I get it now. So from her perspective, she's ready to go the right fit route and on the right fit road. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I want to welcome Jared to Win Without Competing, and I would like Jared to introduce himself, tell us uh, where he lives and what does he do. So welcome, Jared, to Win Without Competing. Jared, are you there? Hello, Jared. Jared, do you hear us? Jared, do you hear us? Yep. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah. Yeah, good. All right. There we go. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing fine because I know that uh, my assistant, Marissa, unmuted you, Jared. You've been sitting patiently throughout the show. I hope that you you learned a lot from listening to Virgil and to me. Yes. there, there, There were definitely some good good points in there that uh, I guess would kind of coincide with the question I have tonight. Um, so I'm 23, live in Minnesota, just uh, starting my career out fresh here, and 
Um, I'm currently working at a contract manufacturing company. Um, and I guess the question that I had tonight was just wondering why so much emphasis, especially in big corporations, is put on um, having a degree rather than, um, I guess, kind of what you guys were saying about accomplishments or experience. Well, let me ask you, Jared, because I'm going to call on Virgil to respond to that. Uh, he's had lots of experience on the employer side because he's the hiring expert. What exactly do you do at the company at which you're currently working? Um, I do a number of things, actually. Uh, my job description is more just focused on returning defective material to suppliers and really managing suppliers, um, reducing our defective parts that we get in the door. Um, but I guess since I've been in my role, it's really branched out into a number of different things um, with training supply chain analysts. Hmm. What's your title? Uh, MRB coordinator. Well, so we material review board coordinator. Okay. Well, you know, it's interesting because Melody, when we talk with her shortly, may have some suggestions and thoughts because she knows lots about the area in which you're working. So, Virgil, uh, could you respond about the degree and how a company figures out whether they need a degree and why they can or cannot change their requirements and also, too, before Virgil responds, I'd like to know, Jared, are you planning to finish your degree? Did you start college, but you just haven't finished? Um, yes, and this all kind of started abruptly. Um, I'd never really given much thought to school. Um, I was moving up in the company pretty quick, and then out of nowhere I hit that ceiling where you know, I was pretty much told without a degree you're not going to be able to go any further. Well, Jared, let me see if I can try to explain how that comes about in a company. And of course if we're talking about a very small company without, you know, without corporate brothers and sisters throughout the country, a very small company has the freedom to pretty much decide whatever requirements they want to have for the jobs that they give people, especially when there's only one person in that job. But when you talk about a large corporation, then their job descriptions all have to be consistent throughout the whole company. And their compensation people even make decisions of what pay scale to put a job in, and it's based upon what the requirements are for the job, which is based upon what the market says, even within their company, about what people have who are in that job. So the company, generally large corporations, I guess as you're talking about, you've kind of hit a, hit a ceiling or a bump in the road 
Yep. <laughs> they generally, you know, in order to move up into certain management in higher roles, the large company is always going to require at least a bachelor's degree. And then as you see the role, even as the management role gets higher, they probably would even require a master's degree. And that's all part of the way they grade it as a salary and the way they just define the job throughout the company. But see, once they've defined it a certain way, then they're legally bound to that definition. Oh, so they can't okay. really make exceptions. It becomes their definition of what that job requires. Okay. So, Jared, we want to encourage you to finish your degree. Correct, Virgil? Yes, I would encourage you to, Jared. It, it you know, to in order to because also with the degree, the company has feels that you know if someone has gone back and gotten a four-year degree, that there's a body of knowledge that they've attained, and that there that's a goal they accomplished by obtaining that four-year degree, and that's that has a value, and makes that management-level job at a higher pay grade. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, yes it does. Good. Well, I wa- I'd like you to stay on the show because we have one more question before we get to Melody, but I also would like Melody to encourage you as well. She has a career that I think will intrigue you. So can okay. you stay on, uh, Jared? Yes, ma'am. Terrific. Good. Okay. So, Virgil, let's um, talk about this question. Why do some hiring managers overlook separating military? I know when we talked prior to the show, you had told me that the military resumes have some difficulty with respect to comprehension. Can you expand and explain uh, the issue with the military resumes? Well, um my experience has been that the someone with extensive military experience, say 20 years or in the military, well, maybe even less, if their main experience is military, they've they've been in a different they've been in a very different environment than the than the non-military world. They've done probably a lot of jobs that are very similar to what jobs are in the non-military world but they're always called something different. Uh, for example, we recently looked at a candidate who was looking at a, uh, an RN position at one of our hospitals, and this person had a lot of military experience, and we wanted to give them credit for the experience there that was relevant to patient care, nursing, and uh, we finally figured out that there was a particular job title that was equivalent to an LPN position. But it wasn't called that in the military. Ah. So I think when someone with a long years of military background, they put their resume together, but they don't translate it into non-military terms. And so the, the hiring authority looks at it, and they see all these numbers and battalion numbers and things about squads and... <laughs> Yeah, so they doesn't they don't understand it. They, they don't, don't know how to relate it to what's going on at your facility. They don't understand, but I I I have been 
some um, some of the military branches have established offices uh, for those who are leaving the military, and they do help them and coach them in rewriting their resumes so that they can present it to the non-military world. Well, I also think they need to help them package themselves to pitch when they go to an interview so that they don't use verbiage that the interviewers wouldn't understand as well. Would would you agree, Virgil? I, I agree completely because the if the... If the person who's inter- if the employer has never been in the military, then they just don't understand what the person's talking about. And right. it's not that they don't respect them and don't respect what their service was in the military. It's just they don't understand it. It's like they're speaking a different language. Um, and it can be, it's just, it doesn't make the person look like the right fit. <laughs> No, I'm sure not, and no one's going to work to figure it out. I think that's what's really important for candidates to understand, that it's not the employer's responsibility to figure out the candidate. It's the candidate's responsibility to explain step-by-step why he or she is the one right fit. Uh, that's very. That's exactly true, and... and um... I do run across candidates quite often who are angry because I'm supposed to have told them. Yeah, I know. We talked about what you had to do because you've had people calling you up and uh, complaining as to why they weren't interviewed, and uh, you had to put some security in the building, right, Virgil? <laughs> yes, we did. We did add a little more, a bit more security measures because people were beginning to get a bit belligerent at times because they would apply for numerous jobs and maybe they did meet the bare minimum requirements for some of the jobs they applied for, but so did several hundred people. That's the problem, right. But they didn't stand out as a right fit. They didn't have any of that extra that, they were, that we were looking for for those positions. So they weren't called in for an interview, but they were... Uh, some have gotten pretty angry. Well, when I'm talking about people asserting themselves, I'm talking about it in a way where they do it in a gracious manner so that they're showing why they're the right fit but not getting angry if the employer doesn't agree for whatever reason. If the employer doesn't agree, that means there's something wrong with the pitch or they haven't determined by probing away what the employer is really looking for. Mm-hmm. I had that when I was in graduate school. I was um, looking for the right graduate assistantship for the next year coming up, and I had previously worked as a bachelor's degree student. As a, in my bachelor's program, I had worked at the university library and um, had liked that mainly because I could do my studying while I was at work. But um, now there was a library position in the education library uh, for the graduate school, and I had applied for it with the the uh, professor who oversaw the library. And I wasn't getting any answer back. And so after a week I called, and I was very nice, and I just said, I'm just calling, you know, this is Virgil, and... I had applied and just wondered, you know, had you made a decision, and I'm very interested and just wondering, you know, 
what if you've made a decision yet no we haven't made a decision then i'd call a week later no we haven't made a decision well eventually i got chosen for the job and while after i was working there one of the other graduate assistants who had been there already said oh do you know when uh the professor was trying to decide who to hire and uh she had these different resumes in front of her and they all sort of looked similar <laughs> and she said to uh well, I don't think she asked his opinion, but he told her anyway. He said, well, I know who you should hire. She said, who? Because she couldn't figure out the right fit. She wasn't thinking about what, <laughs> could, what could distinguish these three. Right. He said, you should hire the person who's been calling you because he must really want the job because he's the only one of these who's ever called you and asked you if you've made your decision yet. She said, you're right. I'll give it to him. It's a great story. And then... <laughs> Explain years later what you did for that person. Well, years later when I was in St. Jude, I was involved in hiring her for an administrative directorship position at St. Jude, the professor who had hired me years before as a graduate student. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. One never knows when something is going to build on something else. So it pays to develop, I think, strong professional relationships all along your career path. Mm-hmm. You can never afford to have an enemy. No, I agree with that. Well, I think we should be welcoming Melody uh, to win without competing. She's been very patient, and uh, I'm eager to see, before we get to her question, about any thoughts that she might have about Jared. So, Melody, could you please introduce yourself? Tell us where you live, what your a bit about your career and why I suggested you might make some suggestions to Jared. Sure. Hi, Dr. Arlene. Hi, Virgil. I live in uh, Long Beach, California, and my profession has been in procurement and supply chain management, mostly on the legal side because I also have a law degree. Mm. Jared... I think what I would recommend is I I do agree with Virgil in that you should finish your degree. What you may want to look into, because it sounds like you have some interesting experience in MRB and and as a planner, there are a couple different routes that you could look at. There are supply chain uh, areas that would emphasize more on the material management side which it sounds like you have done quite a bit of. Uh, but there is also on the engineering side. So maybe you could look at, if you're interested in that, maybe something more specific about uh, materials, industrial engineering, manufacturing engineering. Uh, you, have, uh, you have a lot of areas that you could go into. So it's really quite exciting. I think that what you would what would what would benefit you is if you really sat down and think about what it is about the job that you enjoy and look at emphasizing your studies in that area more. How does that sound, Jared? Oh, he, I, um, Marissa had to mute him, uh, Melody, because it's a little bit tricky here. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, Marissa, can you unmute uh, Jared, so, yeah, she just unmuted him. Jared, what are your thoughts? 
Um, I, I think she makes some good points there. Um, there are, you know, I have started, actually this fall, I started a supervisory management program um, to get my AAS for starters in that. Um, and yeah, there are, there are a lot of different areas I could go with it. And I think up to this point, that's, you know, probably been one of my biggest challenges is deciding, well, what direction do I want to go? Um, what do I want to do with my life? And I originally did start going to school right out of high school um, to college and ended up dropping out because I just didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, so yeah, I think that has definitely been one of one of the major hang-ups for me. And I think, honestly, that's one of the major hang-ups for a lot of people. Um, I've had discussions with people at my workplace, coworkers who are, you know, 50 plus years old and still don't know what they want to do. Um, so at least from my short experience so far is I think sometimes you just got to pick something and run with it. I think, Jared, you have to, I think that's a good advice. You, you, you have to pick something and, and pursue it. Then you may find that that's really not what you want to pursue, but you can sort of branch out and you'll pursue something that's related to that. But if you're not pursuing something, then you're not getting anywhere. Right. Virgil, uh, our time is getting short, so what I'd like to do is let's take uh, one of Melody's questions and let's respond to that and consider that the last question today. And then in 2010, I'd like to invite you back and invite Melody back to talk further about another question she had. And Jared, of course, is welcome to submit another question as well. So let's take uh, Melody's question. Can there really be a balance between careers and life? And I think that, first of all, we need to talk in terms of employee and entrepreneur. And an employee can decide in terms of spending a certain number of hours, okay? Having said that, if, you ha if you're a scientist, chances are you can be an employee, but a nine-to-five won't work. If you're an entrepreneur, it's very difficult to work nine-to-five. I think that you have to decide how you want the balance to be set up. For some people, it may be 50-50. For the most part, the guests that I interview uh, on the Win Without Competing show where I'm focusing on their careers, those people, to a large extent, do not have what would be considered traditional balance because they're spending an enormous amount of time focusing on their career. So it is a bit tricky. So I think that each person has to decide whether it's 50-50, whether it's 75% uh, 
10% for your career, 25% for your personal life. I interviewed Suzanne De Laurentiis last week, the prominent filmmaker, and without her saying it, it was very clear that 90, 95% of her time is spent on her career, and that's something of her choosing. So it really is an individual thing. Did you want to add one more comment, uh, Virgil, before we um, start concluding the show? Um, I think just the only thing I can add, um, because I think you've described how to approach balance very well there, and you know, and a lot of it, it is really the, the individual has to make the decision about what's what's important to them. But then once they've decided, then if they're going to choose an employer rather than be an entrepreneur, they need to choose an employer that has the same philosophy that they have decided they have. Because there are a lot of employers that are very devoted to work-life balance and they offer flexible scheduling. There are careers that offer that, um, that are still professional-level careers, but they're careers that you don't take home with you. (laughs) Well, even like being an RN, a nurse, working and taking care of patients, it's a great job, but you don't have to take it home. Now, HR is different. HR goes home with me every day. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. The I know when we were talking the other day, you told me you're going to be working till ten o'clock at night. Yeah. So uh, it's a bit uh, it's a bit difficult here sometimes to figure out this balance. But I think when we do another show in 2010, let's explore the uh, the balance further at that time. Mm-hmm. That sounds good. Well, I want to thank you, Virgil. And I do hope that you will be my guest co-host again in 2010. I'll be looking forward to it. Terrific. Please join me again next Wednesday, November 4th at 5 p.m. Pacific Time. My guest will be Rachel Brill, Vice President of Development at Zoo Productions. In her current position, Brill manages project development and production relevant to pitches, presentations, and pilots, including the Fox primetime game show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader?, and TV Land's How Did You Get So Rich with Joan Rivers. Archive shows. To listen to archive shows, please visit D-R-B-A-R-R-O dot com and click on the date of the show description that interests you to connect to Blog Talk Radio. I suggest listening to Ann Edwards, Celebrity Biographer, Pulitzer Prize nominee, Sherilyn Kenyon, New York Times bestselling author, and Queen of the Vampire Novel, according to Publishers Weekly. Jan Constantine, General Counsel for the Authors Guild, who won the landmark copyright case against Google. I would love to hear from you. Please email me, drbarrow, that's D-R-B-A-R-R-O, at winwithoutcompeting.com or call 310-441-5305 to learn more about the Right Fit Method and my book, Win Without Competing, Career Success the Right Fit Way, visit 
winwithoutcompeting.com. For information about career coaching, visit drbarrow.com. That's drbarrow.com. And for search services, barrowglobal.com. That's B-A-R-R-O-G-L-O-B-A-L.com. To learn about in-person seminars on the west side of Los Angeles, beginning in November, call 310-441-5305 or email drbarrow at barrowglobal.com. Also, too, if you have an interest in participating in our teleseminars, please do email me and call me and share your thoughts about what you would like to talk about with respect to my Right Fit Method. Remember this trigger tip. Walk down the Right Fit Road and you will win without competing. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Coach One, Founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc.